Skip Yarbrough, I serve as one of the elders here at Calvary Bible Church, and this morning I'll be reading the scripture reading, and we're reading from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I invite you to join along with me as I read from God's Word, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Jacob. Well, good morning, guys. Thank you. Cool. Uh, My name is Byron Brash. I'm the pastor here at Calvary Bible Church. I just want to say thank you to uh, Bobby and Dwight for filling in for me over the last couple of Sundays. And thank you to the elders and deacons that kind of, and staff and volunteers and everybody that keeps things kind of going while I'm out. Uh, If you have any questions about Calvary Bible Church, feel free to see me after the service today. But today we're in our first week of a four-week series on theology, on the theology of angels and demons. And so we will spend this week talking about angels, what are angels, and what is their role in our life. We'll spend next week on, on demons, so that's going to be an interesting conversation. And then we'll spend two weeks on the idea of spiritual warfare. But really the question I would like to answer at this particular moment, not that why my shirt is red, although you're probably wondering if I'm mourning Nick Saban's retirement. Um, actually, I had somebody think that this morning. Um, so, uh, but, but the question I have is this, is, is why are we spending a month talking about systematic theology? I mean, there's two different reasons. Reason number one is because of our mission. The mission of Calvary Bible Church is to guide all to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships. That part of being a biblical follower is understanding doctrine, understanding what we believe, but also because of Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, it says, You shall love what the Lord your God will, your heart, soul, and mind. I take that to be emotions, actions, and knowledge. And so part of loving God is understanding Him, understanding doctrine, understanding the way He has put things together. So every January, we set aside the month just to talk about systematic theology. Two years ago, we started on this endeavor. We talked about uh, two years ago, who is God? So we did God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and then the triune nature of God. And last year we did bibliology, like what is the Bible? How is it put together? Why do we believe that it's inspired? And then this year we're going to do angelology, the study of angels. What are they? What role do they play in our life? Or do they still exist? What? All that kind of stuff. So, but let's begin with a question this morning. Super random. I'll go somewhere with this question, I promise. Um, how many of you believe that Jupiter is a planet in our solar system? Okay, cool. Me too. All right. How many of you have ever 
taken a telescope and actually looked at the planet Jupiter. Okay, a handful of us. So how, those that haven't done that, how do you know that it exists? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when I was uh, a student much uh, younger at UAH, I was like 21 years old, had a head full of hair, and that's why I attracted my wife back then. I was much better looking back in the day before gray hair and balding. Um, and I was a business major, and I looked at the schedule, and I tried to figure out the uh, the easiest science class possible because I wasn't an engineer. I didn't want to take all that funny math. So I was the slacker, and I decided to kind of skip over physics and all that stuff, and I decided to take this astronomy class because I thought it would be easy. Um, and it kind of was because the textbook that we were using, I think, was an elementary school book. Um, made me feel really smart. Okay. And, but one day, it was about this time of year, we go on top of the optics building of UAH, and I look through a telescope, and I see the planet Jupiter, and it's kind of crescent sunlight around its edges, and I'll still, still remember that image all these years later. Like Jupiter, we have, many of us haven't even seen it, but we believe that, they, that it exists. What's the issue with angels? What's the problem that we face today? Most of us here in this room have never even seen an angel. Most of us probably haven't even talked about angels. That our idea, that our vision of what angels are, are the little cupids, you know, that are with wings floating in amongst clouds with an arrow and a bow, right? That is kind of our image of angels. And so what we do is we just have no idea of how they interact with our lives. We have no idea their purpose or their role in our daily walk with the Lord. So then we kind of just dismiss them all together. Matter of fact, we are more familiar and we are more cognizant of the opposite side of the same coin. The demon's role, the fallen angels in our life, rather than the role of angels. So the question is this, what are angels, what is their role, and today that's what we're going to unpack. So if you have your Bible, go to Isaiah chapter 6. So today is going to be systematic theology, so we're going to be bouncing around a little bit, so I would encourage you to keep your thumbs active and ready to go. We're going to be in the book of Ezekiel. We'll be in the book of Genesis and the book of Isaiah and a couple other ones this morning. Uh, But there are actually five different types of angels, if you did not know. There's actually five different kinds, and they all serve a different purpose in the kingdom of God. But before we really get too far in, I just want to kind of, for just a moment, unpack the idea of systematic theology a matter of fact, you know, I, I would just see the word systematic theology, and even after I had graduated from seminary, I found that that topic, just the name, was intimidating. Like I, didn't, like, I didn't feel qualified to even think about doctrine or even think about theology. I mean, Greek and Hebrew was less intimidating to me than just talking about the issue of systematic theology, and it wasn't until... Really after I graduated from seminary, before I really understood what it actually is. Systematic theology, defined by one person, is this. Systematic theology is the attempt to organize all Christian doctrines in logical order. Okay. Um, Systematic theology is studying the Bible topically. It's studying the Bible topically. 
Now, there's a little bit more that you could pile on. You talk about philosophy. You can talk about all this kind of stuff. But at its basic core, theology, systematic theology, is what does the Bible say about a variety of topics? What does the Bible say about predestination? What does the Bible say about God's sovereignty? What does the Bible say about sin or my depravity? And then today, what does the Bible say about angels? But how do we formulate, how do we put systematic theology, how do we package doctrine together? Yes, we look at different Bible verses, but how do we kind of sew it all together into one picture? I was uh, driving up to Gatlinburg, Tennessee over the last couple of weeks. How many of you have ever been to Gatlinburg, Tennessee? Am I, okay, this is the thing to do in the South, that and go to the beach, okay? So um, on the way up there, I downloaded an Audible book, and I downloaded the book uh, Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. Has anybody even began to read that book before? Anybody even know what I'm even talking about? Okay, I'm revealing my inner nerdness right now. Okay, uh, it, the, the audible version of Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion is 67 hours long. Okay, that gives you an idea how big that book is. I did not complete it on the way up to Gatlinburg. You're all wondering. Um, but what it is, is John Calvin in the 16th and 17th century, what he did was he basically put together a systematic theology of the Protestant religion to a prince in Europe. So he's explaining what Protestants believe to this royal figure. And as I'm, you know, sitting there with my AirPods in and tuning out my kids in the background. Okay, anybody else relate to that one? Uh, they're going crazy and making disasters and food, and my wife is probably stressed out and yelling at them, and I just don't care. I'm just popping in a systematic theology, 67 hours worth, okay? Um, I, as I'm reading that book, I, I made a realization that, uh, that systematic theology is a compilation of a lot of different things, but, but systematic theology, constructing doctrine is like building a house. Back in 2019, my wife and I built a house here in Huntsville, and we saw that process unfold. What is the very first thing that they do when they are building your home? They, they prepare what the, the foundation. They clear the land. They pour the concrete. They prepare a foundation. The foundation of theological doctrine is your view of the Bible. That that is, that is the bedrock of doctrine. And think about the, the implications of that. If you question the validity and the inspiration and the authoritative nature of the Bible itself, its inerrant nature, then what? Then your whole theological framework is going to take on cracks, just like your house would if you have an unsteady foundation. And then as I'm driving up to Gatlinburg, I'm just having epiphany after epiphany of just listening to this book. So the foundation of your doctrine is your view of the scripture. That's why it's so important. And then you have the exterior walls of doctrine, kind of your, your boundaries. You know, your, your, you have your football field, you have your out of bounds and your touchdowns, okay? You have your foundation of the Bible. And then the sidelines are your view of God's sovereignty and man's depravity. Is God truly sovereign? That's the question you have to answer. Do you believe, according to the scripture, that God is totally and completely sovereign over all the universe? And how depraved are we? 
Do we have some good in ourselves? Do we have the ability to understand God without the Spirit of God illuminating us? How depraved are we truly? When it says in Ephesians chapter 2 that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, how dead are we? Once you construct the exterior walls, then and only then can you then set up the rooms of different doctrines that you have. So the doctrine of angels, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, and all these different doctrines that we see inside the scripture. So for the sake of clarity, the theological basis that I have is this, that I believe that the Bible is the authoritative, inerrant, inspired word of God. That every word that it says is true. Amen? That's, I, mean, I mean, it's our middle name, okay? Anyways, Calvary, Bible, maybe church. It doesn't say that out there, okay? So the Bible is the foundation and the errancy of the Scripture. And I take the God sovereign to be completely sovereign over all of creation. That God even allows evil, evil he uses to fulfill his ultimate purposes. And that man is totally depraved. That there's nothing I could possibly do without God's help and God's intervention to please and honor him. What does it say? That there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that is the exterior walls and the foundation of the systematic theology of angels. So let's get into angels and demons. So this week we're going to talk about angels. Next week we're going to talk about demons. What are they? And then the next two weeks after that we're going to talk about spiritual warfare and kind of what we do to combat it. So if you have your text, you can go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. So we're going to be bouncing around just a little bit. If, if systematic theology is studying the Bible topically, then you have to bounce around a lot to compile a complete picture of what angels really are. So you have Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this verse, nor any other verse, but I do want to show it to you. What are angels? Let's just answer that question. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands. Now, you're going to wonder what in the world does that have to do with angels? If you notice in verse 11, it introduces it, many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands. The reason I talk about that verse is, number one, we, we see the topic of angels introduced, but I want you to see the numerical value, okay? Is that a good word to say? How many there are. There are myriads and myriads. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands. There's not just three or four angels in the whole universe, but there, there are thousands that exist. The idea of angels, if you have your notes... Who are angels? Number one, angels are messengers of God. That's what the word angels actually means. It is that they are messengers of God. Think about the function of angels in the Old and New Testament. What did they do, especially in the Old Testament? They brought, what, messages from God to his people. I mean, there's really two main ways that God would speak. I guess three. He, would, he sometimes spoke. But then also he would send a prophet to speak or he would send an angel. I mean, think about what are some instances in the Old Testament of God speaking to mankind through angels. He spoke to Hagar through angels. He spoke to Lot in Genesis chapter 19. In the New Testament, he spoke to Mary in Luke chapter 1 verse 30 uh, that she will be impregnated by the Holy Spirit. 
This is what it says in Luke 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. Notice that. Do not be afraid. That is her initial reaction. We'll talk about that here. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So angels are messengers of God, just kind of in its most basic nutshell. But that's not all they do. Pause. Let's pick that up here in just a moment. So let's continue to define angels. One commentator says this, angels are spiritual creatures, immaterial and intangible, limited in power, knowledge, and activity, who are messengers of God, doing specific things in character with their service. Like all responsible creatures, they too will be subject to judgment. So number one, angels are God's messengers. Number two, they are created beings. As you see in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, who do not procreate. They have no ability to create more angels that the number of angels that exist today are all that will exist into the future. Angels also existed before we did. They existed, why do I say that? Partly because of other passages, but partly because of who was in the Garden of Eden. Who tempted Adam and Eve? The serpent who was who? Satan. So angels had to exist before we did. The angels that fell, that rebelled against God, became demons, as we know. And we'll talk about that more next week. And the angels that are still existent are still serving God's purposes. So angels are created spirits without omniscience that learn, have personality, emotions, will, and curiosity, purposed by God to be his messenger. They are invisible, but take on physical form as God deems it. That's Byron's definition. Um, but what else are angels? Okay, it's, it's good and all, but, but, but they're kind of, okay, I get it that they're God's messengers, but there's actually five different types of angels in the Bible, five in total. And what's interesting about it, as I was studying it over uh, driving to Gatlinburg and all this kind of stuff, is that each angel has its own purpose. Group number one are archangels. The only archangel that we know of in the scripture is Michael. That's it. Now, now you, some of you are probably saying, well, what about Gabriel? Okay, what about, what about other angels? We think that they are archangels, but we have no evidence of that in the Scripture. The only reference of Michael being an archangel is uh, Jude chapter 1, verse 9. That there are other Scriptures outside of the Bible that describe Gabriel, Raphael, Surreal, but... The only one we know for sure that is an archangel, a supervisor, so to speak, of angels, is Michael. Group number two are um, angels themselves. Okay. Group number two, group number one is archangels. Group number two are angels themselves. If you were to actually take a look at the different angels in the Old Testament and New Testament, they have a lot of similarities to us. They have a lot of similarities to us. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, what does it say? Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. 
So angels can appear like human beings in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And this is a story about that exact occurrence. So this is a story of Lot and his daughters and Sodom and Gomorrah. If you want to, you think the Bible's for children only. I mean, you go read Genesis chapter 19. It's crazy in there. Okay. Anyways, now you're all going to go read it. So anyways, Genesis chapter 19 introduces the, the idea or the topic of angels. And if you notice, how does it describe them? Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, notice how Lot responds. He rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. So Lot, in Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, sees, they, they, he sees these angels and notices that they're a little bit different. We don't really know why they're different. We don't know if they glowed. We don't know if they had special fire eyes. We just don't know. But Lot saw them. He rose and he met them. And he bowed down to him with his face to the ground. But then notice how it describes them in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 19. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. So it describes them. So number one, you see Lot react. He bows down before them. And then number two, he says they're like men or they appear to be men. So it's kind of weird. There's something spectacular about angels and normal old angels, but there's also something very human and also something very ordinary. Matter of fact, that we can entertain angels without even knowing it, as it says in Hebrews chapter 13. So you have group number one are archangels. Group number two are just Normal angels. And then group number three are cherubim. Cherubim. Cherubim are angels, but they uh, look nothing like us. We have this picture of cherubs and all this kind of stuff floating in clouds, you know, with bows and arrows. But the idea of a cherubim has got to be terrifying if you ever saw one. Ezekiel chapter 10 describes what a cherubim actually looks like, and it looks like something out of a science fiction novel. These are the living beings that saw that I saw beneath God of Israel by the river of Chabar, so I knew that they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, and each one with four wings, and beneath their wings was a form of human hands. As for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the river of, river of Chabar. Each one went straight ahead. Okay, wait a second. So the idea, if you were to actually look this up in other contexts as well. So cherubims, you have archangels, angels. Angels look a lot like us. They don't have floating wings, but there's something special about them. But then cherubim look nothing like us, unless you have four faces. Um, that would be weird. Cherubim have four faces. In other parts of the New Testament, or parts of the Old Testament, it says they have human legs, hoofed feet, and here it says they have human hands and four different wings. Cherubim serve the purpose. Angels are God's messengers. Cherubim are God, the guardians of God's holiness. That is their function in the unseen realm. That is their function in God's universe, that they are the guardians of God's holiness. And why do I say that? Because in Genesis chapter 3, what does God put on guard to guard mankind from going back into the Garden of Eden? He puts a cherubim as a guard. 
Also in Exodus chapter 26, cherubim decorate the temple. They decorate the tabernacle. So cherubim and all of their science fiction weirdness, four faces, hoofed feet, human hands, four wings, human legs. By the way, you should draw one of those and send it to me, okay? That'd be really cool. Uh, they are the guardians of God's holiness. That is their function in God's universe. But then you have archangels, angels, cherubim, the four faces, and then you have something called seraphim. Now, the only mention of seraphim in the entire Bible, at least that actually label it, is in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, which is why we read that this morning. This is what it says of seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. The train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Group number four, the seraphim, they are the attenders to God's holiness. They serve or they attend to his holiness. We see the presence of seraphim here in the holy place of God, in the throne room of God. They have, whereas cherubim have four wings, seraphim have six wings, two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and with two they flew. The name seraphim is actually means serpents. So I have no idea what their face looks like, but maybe it looks like a serpent. I really have no idea. So group number four are the seraphim. They are the attenders to God's holiness. Notice a theme here. They are messengers of God's holiness, guardians of God's holiness, attenders to God's holiness. But then notice group number five is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is group number five. Now, if you were to look... In the Old Testament, there are five different groups of angels, and the one that says the angel of the Lord with all capital letters. Okay, look, you gotta look for all capital letters. If you were to look in the Old Testament, it says an, an angel of the Lord, lowercase, it's not the one we're talking about. We're talking about the angel of all capital Lord Yahweh. Most scholars believe, based on Exodus chapter 3, Numbers chapter 22, the story of Hagar, the story of Genesis chapter 31, most scholars believe that the angel of the Lord is God in angelic form in the Old Testament. Most scholars would even take it a step further, that they believe that the angel of the Lord is the angelic incarnation of the Son of God. If you were to actually, I'm going to go to Exodus chapter 3. This is kind of the best description of the angel of the Lord and his deity. In Exodus chapter 3 is the story of the burning bush. And this is what it says. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and then if you notice in your text, Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, the angel of the Lord, all capital letters, appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not being burnt up. 
Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he's turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place you are on is you are standing on holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So we see just in Exodus chapter 3 that the angel of the Lord, all capital letters, is most likely God in angelic form and is probably the angelic form of the divine son. So you have archangels, angels, you have cherubim who are the guardians of God's holiness, you have seraphim who are the attenders of God's holiness, and you have the angel of the Lord who is the angelic form of God in the Old Testament. But the better question is, what do angels do? What is their role? How do they interact with us in our life? What purpose does this servant serve other than filling out my brain full of information? Um, Angels in the Old Testament are sent by God to give messages to his people. That is the purpose. Think about angels in the New Testament. Think about the book of Acts. What do angels do? They do the same function as they do in the Old Testament, that they come and bring messages from God to his people. And angels, in a sense, do even more than that. Think about the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. What does an angel do? They free the disciples from prison. They undo the doors. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, what do they do? They minister to Jesus after the temptation in the desert. Angels in relation to God, they praise him, they worship him, they rejoice in what he does, they serve him, they're instruments of God's judgment, as we see in the book of Exodus and Revelation chapter 7. But what do angels do for us today? That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing. Angels gave messages to his people in the Old Testament, gave messages to his people in the New Testament, and in my opinion, really nothing has changed. I believe that angels can come from God to give us messages on his behalf. Just think about this logical idea with me. Demons are fallen angels. Demons tempt us for wrong. So then flip that same coin over. Angels prompt us for good. Devils tempt us for wrong. Angels prompt us for good. That is the idea of angels and their role in our lives. Based on Revelation chapter 2 and 3, if you were to look at that section of Scripture, what is always the first line given to each of the churches of the book of Revelation? That the message to the church is given to an angel. Now, some scholars believe that that is a human being. Some believe it's an angel in angelic form. I believe it's probably an angel in angelic form that angels in the Old Testament, angels in the New Testament share what God or kind of prompt us to do the will of God. Okay. But why do we need them? I mean, why do we need angels when we have the completed word of God in the Holy Spirit? 
Because in a sense, because things have changed since the Old Testament, we have the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have the completed Word of God, we have a body of believers in order to help us live. So then what? why do we even need angels in the universe to help us? Why, why do they even play a role in our lives? Um, how many of you are stubborn in the room? Okay. How many of you have ever had your, no elbowing here, okay, uh, how many of you have ever had your spouse tell you something, and you were like, "Oh yeah, right." And what's that? No, no elbowing. Okay, you don't you don't believe? Oh yeah, right. You heard, I mean, you must have heard that on the internet. You can't believe everything you hear on the internet. Okay, uh, it's like this week when I when I heard uh, Nick Saban retired. Okay, anybody else was shocked like I was? All right. So when I heard that on somebody's Facebook post, somebody was crying, I think, and lamenting the goat, the greatest of all time, retiring and no more championships. Okay. And, and so I saw it on Facebook. And the first thing I did was I went on ESPN.com and I saw it there. And then I went to, you know, Yahoo.com and saw it there. And sure enough, it confirmed that it actually happened. I think that's the role that angels play in our life. They make sure we get the memo, <laughs> okay? <laughs> because we as human beings, we as fallen depraved people are stubborn. Am, am I the only one? I mean, my, ch- my wife says my children get their stubbornness from me. That's what, they, that's what she says. I don't believe it. Anyways, we're, 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 all, we're all stubborn. That's what angels do. We have the Spirit of God living inside of us. Yes, we have the body of Christ to surround us and help us live and to edify and to encourage us. We have the completed Word of God, and it's understandable because we are believers in Jesus Christ. But as demons tempt us for wrong, angels prod us for good. That is their role in our life. But then also, their second role in our life, number one, is to help us know what to do to prod us for good. Also, role number two is they help provide what we need, spiritually what we need. You know, as it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, that the the angels ministered to Jesus. Now, there's not a whole lot on how angels provide what we need. We see a little bit in the book of Acts. I think the greatest... Uh, function of angels is to make sure we get the memo what God wants us to do, but also they serve our, on our behalf. So what are angels? Angels are created beings serving God as a messenger and as a servant, possessing in and of themselves intellect and personality while they are immaterial and intangible. But the question is, this one, okay, that's nice, Byron. You know, you gave me a good overview of 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 doctrine right this is the whole nutshell of angels in a 30-minute conversation but so what uh angels the whole doctrine of angels makes me appreciate the love of god and his holiness all the more angels also remind me that the universe is not about me. It's not about myself. The world, as my mother would say, does not revolve around Byron Bradshaw. But that God is so holy and exalted, he is so pure and divine, 
that he not only appointed me and created me in order to praise and to worship and to obey him, but he also created a being that does that on a full-time basis. That God is so holy and pure and so exultant that he has divinely made sinless creatures to serve his needs, to worship and to exalt him. And only the angels that did not fall with Satan are in his presence who serve his demands. And we see the holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6, that he has created these divine angelic beings for the purpose to make sure we as stubborn people get the memo and to make sure that he, his holiness and his glory is met and is communicated at all times. Angels remind me of God's holiness. That really, uh, the universe is about him. Amen? It's not, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. But it's about God and how great and how holy and how righteous and how loving he is. The whole message of the Bible is God's love for me compels me to love God and love others. That the Bible, the universe, is all about him Angels remind me of God's holiness and God's love. And God's love. Think about it. At the moment of salvation, at the moment that you come to Christ, what happens in that exact moment? That the moment you believe that you have, number one, eternal life. You have earthly, abundant life. You have adoption as his child. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have been born again. You are a new creation. You're a part of a body of Christ. You are his ambassador. You have a spiritual inheritance. Then not only that, he gave me his completed and errant word. He dwelt me with the Holy Spirit of God that God himself lives within me. But the love of God is even communicated even further with the idea of angels, that God is so devoted, so concentrating on me to want to know his love and to also walk with him, to be obedient to his call, to have a relationship with him that he has appointed. He has made a whole host. Myriad of myriads, thousands upon thousands of angels to make sure that he can help me overcome my own stubbornness so I can follow him to the nth degree. You know, we dismiss the idea of angels. We dismiss the ministry of angels. We overlook them. We often think more about the influence of demons and devils in our life and the spiritual warfare that is going on rather than a whole host of angelic beings that are designed to help us obey him, to prod us to do good. That is the idea and the doctrine of angels. Angels make me appreciative for the holiness of God, that there are beings that are in the throne room of God right now saying holy 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 and angels remind me that the world is not about me it's about the glory of the Lord and that God's love is everlasting and devoted to my obedience of his will that is the idea of angels but you know all of this discussion is weird. 
if you do not have a relationship with God. You know, an outsider, a non-believer in Jesus Christ might look at the doctrine of angels, something that we can't smell, taste, or touch, and wonder if we are on something, okay, or wondering if we're in our right mind. I believe that if you're not a Christian today, that this is going to be hard. It's hard for me to fully understand. But if you're not a Christian, it's going to be hard for you to accept because you do not have the Spirit of God living within you. You know, if you are unsure of your relationship with God, if you do not know where you are, then today Jesus Christ has come and he has died for you on the cross to present you eternal life and abundant earthly life by faith in him. I think a lot of people today are going to die and pass on from this world and they're going to go up to the gates of heaven and they're going to look at the person they meet at the gate, okay, and, and they're going to say, I never knew you, depart from me. And, and, and you're going to be, as you go away, you're going to be, hey, 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 I'm, I'm a Christian, you know, I, I went to church and, you know, I, I, I was part of a Christian family and I did all the right things. But none of those things make you a Christian, amen? None of those things save you. The only thing that saves you in this world is faith in Christ Jesus, that he has come and he has died on a cross to pay for my sin in full, that if I trust in him and in him alone as Lord and Savior of my life, that that is the only way to attain eternal life. If you have questions about Christ, having a relationship with him, feel free to see me after this service. Let us pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can set aside a time today and in the year to talk about doctrine and understanding and belief systems. Lord, I I pray that today that we would see uh, just the importance of angels and how they play a role in our life. Lord, I pray that we would, um, that they would remind us of your goodness and your holiness and of your greatness and of your love for us. And Lord, I pray that we would just be more mindful in our daily life of what really is going on in the universe. That there is a spiritual war happening that we cannot smell, taste, or touch. That is fighting against uh, your will and your desires. And Lord, I pray that we would listen to you and to your spirit and to your messengers to obey you fully. I thank you for this church. I thank you for uh, your love and your holiness and how you display it in your word. And we lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.